Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara with GBAO. And today we're going to do things a little differently because Kristen is traveling and I have a guest host, which I don't really think I've had a guest. Oh, Kellyanne Conway. I have had a guest host before you and it was Kellyanne Conway. So that is the bar. <laughs> and well, <it> is... <laughs> I can definitely get under that bar. <laughs> that is the bar. And and this was like, that was pre-Trump. That was in her cruise days, not in her Trump days. Anyway, Doug Usher, who I've known you for like, Around 20 years or so? 20 years, Margie. You were my first boss in Washington. Wow. I guess that's true. I mean, we were both like in our early, mid-20s, so I don't really – like, I mean, boss is not really a very good phrase for 20-year-olds talking to other 20-year-olds. But when you left the firm, you did ask me to leave, and I didn't have the guts to go with you. So <laughs> we go back a long way. You ways. could have been a founding partner of Momentum Analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so what are you doing? But then we worked together again, and then you were my boss at Purple, and now we are we do not work together at all. And um, you are now at Forbes Tate. What is your new gig? So I'm working for Forbes Tate Partners, where I am helping to lead their public affairs uh, department, but also uh, building out an insights practice. So something like what I've been doing in the past, whether at Melman or at Purple Strategies, uh, but in a bit of a different way, looking at the intersection of business, politics, policy, and regulation. So not just a polling firm, but really helping build the strategy for that. Got it. So you have some new analysis that we're going to talk to in a little bit. So I know you had a big birthday recently and a big anniversary, and now you're on the pollsters. So this is the greatest day of my life. That's great. That is not even in the script. And I'm not going to make it hard for you. I know Kristen's not here. I'm not going to ask you about like boy bands and like Twitter and, you know, some of the stuff, you know, that she likes to talk about. So that those we can topics, talk about kids stuff. Yes. Which she does not like to. Talk yes. About. We can talk about like, yes, how fun it is to have children. Exactly. <laughs> the joy of parenthood. I never knew how wrong I was <laughs> until my daughter and son told me. <laughs> yes, exactly. OK, so. We have some new numbers on Trump, right? He kind of denied. This has been like a really enjoyable story. I have to say out of all the like weird polling stories that that happened, like Trump saying, I don't believe in pollsters, like as if they're like ghosts or something. Well, he doesn't believe in pollsters that give out polls that are bad for him at any given time. Right. 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 (laughs) And, you know, I mean – to the extent like I ever have a charitable or, you know, agree agreeing thought with the Trump campaign, like they don't have to, you know, so just as some context over the last, you know, couple, you know, week or so, there were some poll. We talked about a little bit about last week. The Trump campaign had some polls that were leaked and released in ABC News that showed him down double digits to Biden in a couple states that he won last time. At the same time, there were a bunch of public polls in some of those states and other states he won last time, whether Florida or Texas, in addition to Michigan and Wisconsin that show him down. And he's been down in a lot of general election matchups in all kinds of states and nationally against not just Biden, but a variety of different candidates have been tested now for a while. The RCP keeps track of that sort of thing. Um, In addition to obviously all the terrible numbers he has on every other metric. So, you know, it's not just the head to head, which you can argue correctly that, you know, the Democrats are not defined as well as the president who is, you know, out there communicating every day. And, you know, people are learning about some of the other candidates. So uh, that's, I think, a fair thing for the Trump campaign to say, like, this is just a, you know, it's why look at general election polls this far out. I I don't want to say like, sure, they're meaningless, but he's they're correct. The Trump campaign is correct. For once I've said it, like, you don't need to freak out necessarily about a poll now. The public polling tells you where the race is, not where it's going to go. Um, but then the campaign manager just went like crazy on the whole industry. Well, it's the amazing. Weekend. They have a really straightforward story they can tell. Exactly what you said, Margie, plus the idea that they've been down before. They were down in 2016. They could tell a great positive story about this. But let's face it. Trump does not like to have anything that says that he's not the greatest man on earth. Right. So it's like it's fake. This is a fake thing and it's just polls are meaningless. And the other thing that I thought like, okay, campaign manager should sort of maybe stick to kind of his usual lane where he's like, it's too complicated now. It's It's not 1962. But, you know, polling is complicated. People vote in all kinds of different ways, which is true. 
but is not that doesn't really have anything to do with general election polls right now and good polls, the campaign polls that his firm should I mean, his man campaign should be doing would be able to compare people who vote early or absentee or, you know, vote by mail. Like that's the job of the people you hire. It's not like throw up your hands and be like, this is ridiculous. Like It's all bunk. You know, Polling the is whole dead is garbage. today. <laughs> It's going to be 1962 again as soon as some great numbers come out for Trump. Right. That's the so that's just what you have to wait for. And then polling will be resurrected. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a campaign thing to just say, well, I don't believe the polls. You know, when I go out and talk to America, they're really excited about what we have to say. And the only poll I care about is on Election Day. And like you are totally allowed. Like I, there is no shame in a manager or candidate doing that publicly to talk about polling data. But when, you know, then he started to like go into the whole thing that the whole thing is like a made up sorcery. When, as right. of a week ago, they had five pollsters. Well, <laughs> there's well, also have, that, you know. Well, I have two when you can have 20. <laughs> so I don't know. I just found it a, I found it a little bit enjoyable. You know, the, the Trump approval ratings are the same. I mean, the other thing that I thought was ridiculous was like, oh, well, these numbers would have changed and that was months ago and things are different now when his approval ratings have been terrible, you know, since he took office. I mean, they haven't really moved very much. Right, right. I, you know, I think that what's interesting about the approval ratings is, and this is taking a more serious look at it. He's definitely below where his peers, if you will, incumbent presidents have been in the past. The one thing that's going in his favor is they haven't moved that much. Right. They've almost always been in this high 30s, low 40s range. And so, again, if you were to make his approval rating, his approval yeah. rating. And if you're going to make a legitimate story from the campaign, you could say expectations are built in right now. Right. And when he got to be president, he wasn't very popular either. No. So you can make the argument that the approval is not that closely related to his chances at reelection. With that said, he would prefer to have polls that show him winning and he would prefer to have approval ratings in the 50s. Right. So his their arguments can be like polling is garbage. It's all meaningless. Like up is down, down is up. So if the polls show us down, that must be we're up, right? That That's one argument they, make, they can make. The other argument is like we – you know, the polls – like you said, the polls tell a story that's different than what's going to happen in these states and X, Y, and Z, some sort of like tactical kind of thing, right? We're going to get at our base and so it doesn't matter if, you know, everybody else, you know, strongly disagrees proves of us, right? And then the, the third thing is like, we hear people, we know we need to go out and talk to folks and like make a case of why we're the president for everyone in America, which of course, like that's that's the one that they're not doing. Right. <laughs> we know we have some work to do. Right, right. We're going out listening, you know, <laughs> which, you know, would be a perfectly, that would be a good thing. But, you know, we know that he's not going to do that. But, but what about the emails, Margie? <laughs> God, what about, what about the tweets? What about the tweets? And then um, the uh, the Fox News poll. I mean, you don't have to look even at the leaked polls. I mean, Fox News, which is a bipartisan polling operation, like a Fox News, you know, Fox News polls qualify for the Democratic presidential debates. Wait, do you know anything about those, Margie? I have been reading some of those stories, for sure. Anyway, so Fox News is a qualifying, you know, debate qualifying polling outlet. They are a bipartisan operation. They, too, show the Democratic candidate. This is, I think, a generic, right? I don't think they have, um, it looks like they just have a Democratic candidate versus Trump. It doesn't really matter how you ask the question. It doesn't matter whether it's um, you know, the head to head, it doesn't matter if the head to head versus Biden versus somebody much less well known. It doesn't matter if we're talking about if it's no named candidate at all. It doesn't matter if it's approval rating or does the is the president honest? Does the president lie more than previous presidents? Did the president commit crimes before he was president? I mean, the numbers are not good. Like right. there's no way to look at it and say, oh, these numbers are are actually perfectly fine. Right. Trump won in 2016 with a very enthusiastic base plus a bunch of other people who voted for him because they didn't feel like they had a choice. Right. It's the same is going to be true in 2020. And right now what you're seeing is his very enthusiastic base is in the 35 to 38 percent range. The rest of those people probably didn't want to vote for him in 2016, but did. Right. They probably don't want to vote for him again, but might. Right. And so – they're not going to vote today with an undefined Democratic candidate who seems fine in comparison. Um, he's not going to get reelected with 55 percent of the vote. 
he's going to be scratching his way over the finish line. Right. The nose holders, as I've heard some <laughs> some folks call them, the nose holders. Yes. Right. right. So there right. are quite a few, quite a few nose holders. So speaking of what's next, so there's been a little bit of polling. So you know what happens next for. Trump, right? It, he one of the things that they cited into why his polling data, you know, wasn't as strong as they would have hoped, is because of what's been happening with the special counsel investigation. It there are a couple outlets still looking at impeachment and views toward impeachment, and you know, I think we're getting kind of more detailed public polling on impeachment than we were originally. Originally, it was like, should you know, should this happen or should it happen? Um, I thought. What was interesting is USA Today, Suffolk asked a question that I don't think I've seen before, saying Pelosi said, most people don't fully understand what would happen if the House impeached Trump. Based on your own understanding, what would happen next if the House voted to impeach Trump? I thought that was kind of an interesting question. I wonder how it would be different if they didn't have the Pelosi setup. Would there have been a different answer? I don't I don't know. I think that's right. I think what we know from our experience with polling is that the more a question leaves things up for grabs, the more uncertain the answer is going to be. And when you ask about something that could or couldn't happen in the future, might or might not happen in the future, you're going to get answers all over the place. Right. So half here said their understanding of impeachment, just what they think it would do would be, well, then the Senate would hold a trial and decide whether to remove Trump from office. Forty, About 50 percent said that. Nine percent said Trump would be removed. And about a fifth said the matter would be referred to the Supreme Court. And that then, sounds like a pretty good guess. You know, 17 percent say undecided. I mean, you know, it's these are, you know, these things are tricky. I'm never kind of surprised that people trying to figure out how this stuff works. I mean, I'm pretty sure half the House doesn't know what would happen. <laughs> After impeachment anyway. I mean, you know, I mean, we have to remember, like, people are not following this, the twists and turns as closely as the folks, you know, the seven people listening to the pollsters right now. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I did focus groups a couple months ago about, like, how people thought the, the investigation might end. And I was like, first, let's just, you know, just some names. Tell me what do you think their jobs are? Jim Comey. And, like, half of the room would say... You know, I'm not totally sure. I, I've heard of him. I know. I just don't know exactly what his job is or was. And I'm like, okay, sure. Next one, Robert Mueller. And same thing. They're like, I, you know, I think he's a lawyer. I don't know exactly what his job job is. So you could answer favorable in a closed ended survey. You could say, well, I'm somewhat favorable toward him because I think I need to. I think that name sounds familiar and like someone I I think I respect, but I'm not sure. Um, but asked to say, well, what's the job of that person is an open end that, you know, then gets a little harder. Right. People understand when the Super Bowl is and then what's <laughs> going to happen. There's going to be ads and there's going to be other things. Impeachment is an incredibly complicated I thought we were going to do sports. Kristen's not here today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like these gotcha questions about um, football. Sorry. I don't sorry. know what's going to happen. I'm going to like <laughs> eat some chips and like go home early. <laughs> I mean, the impeachment question is just a proxy for how people feel about Trump right yeah. now. No matter how you slice it, that's what's going on. If the House were to pursue impeachment, People would get more information every day. It's really unpredictable where public opinion would go. Well, you know, one of the areas where there is more agreement is whether the White House should comply with congressional subpoenas to testify. There you see a majority. And so this is one where we've done this kind of stuff in Navigator. We're broken out by party and Republicans are like, sure, you know, he should test. He should release his tax returns. He should comply with subpoenas. Like, what's the problem? Right. So. Right. And that and what's interesting is that then he doesn't. And then Republicans say, well, he shouldn't. No big deal. Right. Right. Um, and then the other thing, and this was interesting in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, there was some difference. So there was a little bit of movement on they asked a question um, about what do you think, you know, what's your sense about impeachment uh, discussion about Congress holding hearings to consider impeaching and removing. There they say impeach and remove. So that's just that's a little bit different. But you know, I, I understand that all the all the different outlets ha ask it differently. So this is impeach and remove as opposed to impeach just in the House, right? Anyway, so the the category is there is enough evidence for Congress to begin impeachment hearings now or Congress should continue investigating to see if there's enough evidence to hold impeachment hearings in the future or they shouldn't hold the hearings and Trump should finish his term as president. And half agree with that last category. But the percent who say there's enough evidence has ticked up a little bit just since 
the end of April, just in the last few months. I mean, it was not that different. The end of April was not really that different from March, but the new poll is a little bit different, although the percent saying there shouldn't be impeachment hearings is the same. Although I do think it's it's potentially conflating removal from hearings. I think but that's I, right. I think that's hard for people to kind of separate. But what you're seeing is the solid core Democratic base, which is, you know, say 20 percent of the public who is really going to be focused on these debates are coalescing around impeachment. Right. And they support it. You're going to see it in the debates. It's going to gain steam in the debates. But Nancy Pelosi and others are looking very solidly at the 48 percent that say no. And the ones in the mushy middle, if you will, that might be ready to go start it, but don't know where it's going to go. And they fear what's going to happen next, which is you go through impeachment. The White House says we're not participating. And then what happens? Right. Well, I mean, but in the Suffolk poll, though, it's not half. It's less than that to who say Congress should drop its investigation into Trump and his administration. Because there, there isn't in that question, there isn't like the specter of removal. It is just about the hearings. Now, they asked about in the previous question, what do you think? Do you think it's removal or not? So who knows if the removal folks are, how they feel differently about whether or not, whether the impeachment should matter um, or impeachment is what they do next. But that's, you know, that's what makes these questions very hard for if they're hard to write, they're hard to, you know, people have different kinds of answers or slightly different based on well, that's why question wording. That's why polling's dead, really. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's much more complicated than 1962. Exactly. For that. Back then, it was very easy. <laughs> there were no questions about impeachment. <laughs> that's one way it was easier. No questions about like, did the president commit crimes before he came into office, or while in office, or both? <laughs> right. All of the above. <laughs> okay, so we're going to take a break, and then we will come back and talk a little bit about the Democratic side. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online, so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Okay, so we are back from our break. It feels a little weird to do all of the, like, parts of the show myself. You know, Kristen's so good at, like, this is a part where somebody needs to say something correctly. <laughs> That's Kristen's job. <laughs> so I think I'm doing okay, but Richard, I'm sure, will let me know. Um, so there are now a couple things about, like, what the Democrats sh- should do. And I'm always interested in these questions that I just think don't – fully get it. I think they're impossible to really get a good answer in a quantitative setting. Um, But, you know, people try and I understand people trying. And and one is about the race and gender of the Democratic candidate. And so Ipsos did something where they asked only if Democrats are independents. So we don't know if they're primary voters. It sounds like people who self-identify as Democrats are independents. How important or not important are the following um, that the Democratic Party nominate a woman as its candidate in 2020 or not? nominate a minority or nominate a white man or nominate someone who can beat Trump as its presidential candidate, right? That's that last one. And, um, I, you know, I always find a few th- – I mean, it's how important, I think, is different than like what you would prefer, right? Some of these questions, I think, ask people to put themselves in the minds of like political consultants and pundits. And who's going to choose of Democrats or independents – that they would prefer to nominate a woman over preferring to nominate somebody who could beat Trump. I, I'm. Is it possible? I think these are individual ratings. They but are still. But the intensity, of course, is going right. to be highest on beating Trump. Right. Especially after the party, frankly, has right. nominated a woman, nominated an African American. Uh, we've 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 done that. We certainly should. Do it again. Right. Um, Won the popular vote every time. Exactly. But the most important (laughs) thing right now is to win both the popular vote and the Electoral College. And so that's the priority. So I think that I actually think to me the the most disconcerting thing about this poll is the next question that asks whether your neighbor might be uh, accepting of a female candidate. And that's where it goes from the question is you're comfortable with the female president, 74 percent yes. 
but your neighbors are comfortable with a female president, just 33% said that their neighbors are comfortable with a female president. It's a great way to get people- They need to move to Tacoma Park. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And then they're going to be comfortable with all kinds. (laughs) Well, they're only comfortable with a non-binary president, Tacoma Park. Um, We are comfortable with all kinds of identities. Now, so a woman would have been, and so then the thing that was, you know, interesting here is your spouse or immediate family is comfortable with a female president, and there's no difference between- men and women on how they feel about their spouse, which I thought was interesting. Although you have that or immediate family, which then kind Right, of the like, crazy uncle. Yeah, the crazy like... uncle that is in every one of these stories. Where I was like, well, what, if, <laughs> what about your crazy uncle? Like, it's I never know. like a crazy aunt. It's always a crazy uncle well, for some Ross reason. Ross Perot used to have the crazy aunt in the basement. He used to talk really? about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that shows how old I am. But now it's just the we crazy uncle. We are almost uncle. the same age. <laughs> <laughs> I am not too young to remember, to not remember Ross Perot. Um, but I just don't remember that particular line. So yeah. And then, you know, and then, I mean, look, you can, it's interesting to see how people respond to these things. I'm always interested in it. But it's not, you can't glean, by, you have you can't have to glean bias. You can't ask bias to Directly. So this question like women are less effective in politics than men. I mean, 14 percent of that. I, and this is just of Democrats and independents, I should note still. 14 uh, percent of men say that and 8 percent of women. So there is a difference, but it's not, you know, but the whole question. How big of, is that difference? Is that difference like, I, you know, people are really are they overreporting? Are they underreporting? Right. These are all questions of electability. And in the end, you are asking people to be strategists right. when you ask them about electability. And I think what we end up finding is that this far out, there's a lot of focus on electability. As we start to get closer, people's belief about a candidate then comes very close to their belief about electability. Once right. people start falling in love with the candidate, they don't just think the candidate's great and they can't win. They think they can win. Right. So it really is going to be about the candidates moving forward. It is fascinating, though, just to me, and I think it's something we should we should track over time, that today so few of the neighbors are comfortable with a female president. I'm wondering if that's Hillary Clinton residue or something like that, that they know that many of their neighbors didn't vote for Hillary right. Clinton. And so they think that that's the problem because I don't think that – I don't think in the end this country will have a problem voting for – a female president down the road. Hillary again, Cl- right. A- again, correct. <laughs> um, uh, but I think right now that discomfort is something that I think all of the candidates should think about but might play into some Democratic primary voters' choices. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and I don't know. I mean, sometimes people want to use these questions as a proxy for their own bias that people may not want to admit to having their own bias, but they'll admit to the bias of their neighbors. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's, True or not, because, you know, how well do you know the bias of your neighbors? You know, do you really know it better than the bias of yourself, of your, which you may not know either, right? But they're kind of, they're, they're strange. I think there is, I suppose, a proxy. I guess it's better than saying, how do you feel about the country, which people then are responding to something much more vague. Right. And these voters seem to be as confused about what it's going to take to beat Trump as the Democratic primary field does. <laughs> I mean, the I mean, the, I don't know why folks are sort of surprised and not surprised, but why we we keep asking this question, like, would you prefer X thing or a candidate who will beat Trump? Like, it's always going to be right. a candidate who can beat Trump. Like, there aren't going to be a lot of voters in the Democratic primary say, well, I would prefer this other thing that's not right. going to beat Trump. It's that you're and why are we suggesting that your preference is somebody who won't, you know, clearly you have to decide. Right. It's, By the way, it's not it's not an or, it's an and. Right. The candidate who's going to beat Trump has got to be something else yeah. too. If we, <laughs> if we all like this person, then guess what? Then they can beat Trump. So. Right. Exactly. And they certainly don't – I mean they don't want to recreate Trump in the Democratic electorate. So it's just a matter of figuring out who that person is. Um, yes. So anyway, that's – I find I find these questions interesting. Every outlet does them. I, I don't know if I've seen one where I'm like, oh, yeah, you've cracked it. I mean, I just think they're all different, you know, kind of flawed ways to get something that's kind of impossible to, to get people to figure out. Um, OK, so let's talk a little bit about the analysis that you did. Great. Thanks, Margie. So um, I've been lucky at Forbes State to work on a project called One Country Project. Uh, this was started by Senator, former Senator Heidi Heidkamp and former Senator Joe Donnelly, who, after they lost uh, their re-election attempts in 2018, saw how poorly the Democratic Party was doing in rural America. Mm-hmm. Um, they felt it firsthand. Uh, you see it in how uh, the 
the, the, the candidates are performing around the country. Um, so we did a deep dive mm -hmm. into what it means for Democrats. And the results are really startling. So Margie, you said earlier that Democrats keep winning the popular vote and then losing. Um, that's a serious problem. And if you take a look at what's going on among Democrats in rural America, it's where you see the root of the problem. So let me just uh, give you a little bit of some of the information that we yeah. pulled out, because this is really important as we think forward to, to, uh, to 2020. So we took a look at the 2000 election when Al Gore won the popular vote by half a percentage point, uh, but then lost the election. Um, by, with winning by half a percentage point, he got 266 electoral votes. Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton then won in 2016 by 2.1%. She got 39 fewer electoral votes. Mm -hmm. She won more popular votes and got fewer electoral votes. What's going on is Democrats are tanking in rural America, and they're tanking in swing states. If you take a look, for example, at Ohio, we uh, lost by 20 points in rural parts of Ohio back in 2000. Last cycle, we lost by 42 points. You take a look at Pennsylvania. It was nearly even. We lost by five in Pennsylvania among in rural counties, lost by more than 20 points. So what's happening? We end up as a party overperforming in larger urban states. And we basically are taking votes away from states where we need to win and packing them into states where we've already won. We're winning states like New York and California by 20, 30 points. And we're losing these incredibly important swing and close states uh, by just a few points where if we just could increase our performance in rural America by a few points, we could win. So I have two counterpoints or two questions for that. So one is you could look at the results in 18 and say, OK, well, Ohio, we didn't win statewide. But in Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, uh, you know, Democratic governors were successful. There were lots of pickups and congressional races and battleground races in all those in all those states. There were gains in some of the state legislatures in some of those states. Isn't this a sign that this was a, you know, perhaps things under Trump were a blip and their folks are coming back and, you know, Democrats are rebounding in their success in some of these states? It's possible. Um, and it would be great if Democrats could re, uh, recreate that performance in 2020. That hasn't happened in years past. If you take a look, look at re-elections, you look at Obama's re-election, he rebounded mm -hmm. from huge losses uh, in 2010. If you look at Bill Clinton's re-election, he rebounded from huge losses in 94. The more important problem is that Let's just say you took Democrats' performance in 2018. The party won the popular vote. If you look at all the House races, put them all together. The national popular vote, they won by seven points. If you were to translate that to states, we would win 296 electoral votes. That's great. We would win the presidency. But it took a seven-point victory to eke out a presidential victory. In 2008, with different votes around the country, meaning performing better among mm -hmm. rural voters, Obama won by seven points and picked up 365 electoral votes. So we're basically creating, by losing rural votes in these swing states and in some non-swing states, we're creating a bar where we have to win the popular vote mm -hmm. by more and more points just to guarantee a slim electoral vote majority. There's no reason to play politics like that. So, all right, so here's the other counterpoint. The other counterpoint or the other thing you hear people say is like, this is not like laying this at the feet of Democrats who are failing to connect with folks in these states. Could it just be that people are, you know, people are moving, people are sorting themselves and moving to, you know, be near neighbors where they feel comfortable with their assessment of, of what they feel about presidential candidates? And, you know, that's not something that is like Democrats' fault. That's just what's happening demographically in our country. Well, if that's the case, then in a lot of ways we have to sort of throw up our hands and say we're going to have to live with the fact that we have to build our coalition in a way that wins presidential races by four or five percentage points. But as we all know, these days, races are much closer than that. Mm -hmm. But there also isn't the data to prove that out. There are a lot of folks who did vote Democratic. There are a lot of counties that have swung by 30 or 40 points, and they haven't lost 30 percent of their population over that time. Mm -hmm. There are people that are moving from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Just to, just to take a look and see what would happen in 2020, um, the reality is Democrats are making gains and they are improving from cycle to cycle among younger voters, among minority voters, among suburban women especially. But let's say we played it out and had – Right, Tech Sarah and that book from like 12 years ago. They're like, we exactly, did it. We nailed it. Exactly. We won. <laughs> um, uh, if you take those patterns, 
Um, so we just assume that rural votes go in the same pattern, but more importantly, non-rural voter trends, some of those mm -hmm. more positive trends happen, and then turnout continues to go in the way that it's gone. Democrats will get more popular votes. We'll win the popular vote by almost four percentage points, and then we'll lose again. Um, we'll make some ground. We'll gain some ground in Arizona, Georgia, Florida, Nevada, North Carolina, Texas. That's great. Republicans will keep winning them by fewer points, but they're going to still win them. We're going to win California and New York by 36 points. I'm right. not suggesting right. there's a policy solution. Right. What I am suggesting is there's a pretty significant math problem right. in front of Democrats. We can debate how to deal with it. But when you watch these maps fill in and people say, you know, we're going to make it up in Broward County. You know, that's just not going to happen if we're losing that's these where other my grandmother counts. lived. <laughs> <laughs> and she voted for Buchanan, right? <laughs> no, she did not. Right. Exactly. By mistake. Yeah, um, right, right, right. Uh, but we can't make it up anymore. And in Pennsylvania, places like that, we are right. – Hillary overperformed. As we all know, she overperformed. They met their targets right. in Philadelphia. They met their targets in Milwaukee. They met their targets in Detroit. They just watch the rural votes slip away. That creates a 8,000, 10,000 vote margin you can't overcome. So you're saying we might need a candidate who is the only candidate in the field who won in a red state that Trump won, the year that Trump won. You know, it is interesting, <laughs> but there are some states, you know, in the mountain area that Democratic <laughs> candidates have won not too long ago. Right. Okay. Well, keep that in mind, folks. Oh, by the way, it's onecountryproject.org. You can find all this data. We're going to cool. do it. We're going to do it. More. We're going to do a, a, a sadly, similarly depressing analysis of the Senate as well that's going to be coming out soon. Mm. Um, but, but I mean, part of what this, this project is not just about scaring and depressing people. It's also about helping First of all, voters understand the importance. I mean, after, you know, a couple of years of Trump now, I'm I'm well. You're you, fully depressed. I'm fully ready for <laughs> sad and depressing briefings. <laughs> but what's interesting about the project is they're also going the other direction. There's a trolling Trump portion of the project oh. where we. Uh, now I'm, you got my attention. So we ran billboards mm -hmm. um, at his last speech talking about the problems that he's created for rural voters. Oh, and, yes, I saw that. Yeah. So there's going to be more of that, a little bit more guerrilla tactics. Very, you know, grassroots, sometimes silly, sometimes very serious. I mean, for example, the Midwest is flooded and farmers can't put their put their crops in the field. That is a disaster. Com combining that with trade policy and Trump has hurt the very voters that he should be helping. Right. So we're going to be pointing that out. Um, it's organized in two ways, including some very aggressive ways that we can we can do that. There's also a nonpartisan public education portion of it. Right. So we'll slice out the public education portion of this and make sure that people hear that as well. Cool. Um, uh, but the point is that it's it, it's a way for us to try to re-engage a part of the country that while I know there are activists who are frustrated with rural America in the Democratic Party, there are also those who are hungry to win. And we've got to realize that they're there. They're there for, for for Democrats to start to claw back aids, not to win among, we're not going to win rural voters back uh, and win a majority there, but to go from 30 points to 15 points in defeat, we'll win the country back. Okay. Well, that's that sounds like a not depressing way to end that. Okay. So we're going to take another break and then we will probably have something more depressing to discuss. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, we're back. And some breaking news. People find the political dialogue pretty negative. I know Come you're on. surprised. I know. I know. I know. I said I wasn't going to give you any gotcha surprise data, but this did come out today and it seemed relevant from our friends at Pew 
who helpfully make sure we see everything they do. Um, so they ask some questions. Most uh, the percent over the last who say over the last several years, the tone and they don't say how many years, several years, you know, who knows? Uh, the tone and nature of political debate in this country has become more negative. Eighty five percent say more negative. Eighty five percent say less respectful. Two percent say more respectful. <laughs> We're the two percent. <laughs> Come on, seventy-six percent say less fact-based. Sixty percent say less focused on issues. I feel like that one people would have said kind of at any time. Right. Forty-six percent say less entertaining. Thirty-five percent say more. That's the one where people are like, oh, maybe that one's actually moved in the right direction. Thirty or or in a different direction, I guess. Thirty-five percent say more entertaining. Um, and it, 55% say Trump has changed the tone and nature of the political debate for the worse. 24% say for the better. What do you think of that? Breaking news. American public <laughs> accurately says what's going on in politics. I know. I know. But I, you know, I always find that, I mean, look, obviously, as we've established, we've been doing this for a very long time. So when I was first doing focus groups many years ago, it wasn't like people were saying, Way to go, Washington! You're doing, you know, you're doing a heck of a job, Washington. Like, never heard that. Like, yeah, I, you know, I really appreciate the, you know, the negative ads I get, and you know, it seems like everyone's working really hard. I mean, there was like this thing where they thought their own members were doing well, and everyone else in Congress was bad. Now they, you know, at least last cycle, they didn't even think that. You know, they thought everybody was bad. Um, so, but they always felt like it sounded bad. But th- it seems like. It's gotten worse. You always have to that like first ten minutes of the focus group where people are like, "It is just bad." I'm why you know I can't take it. I can't listen. You know, I, and I think it's I, just gotten worse. That part is just more is just harder to listen. And I think what's happening is it's 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 seeping into everybody's every corner of everybody's life. You're right. If you're a Democrat and you go into the into the dry cleaner and Fox News is playing, it just grates on your nerves. And the yeah. same thing is true for Republicans who walk in to a to a Starbucks or to walk into Tacoma Park and have to listen to people yell about something else. <laughs> um, and it's it's infecting families. I have to watch the octopus get moved from the farmer's market <laughs> to the children's school co-op. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to say I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, Richard knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> this uh, is a big news. But <laughs> I, I think that that's is, – is, Politics was always contentious. I mean, people always argued about politics, but it feels so personal. It feels so visceral. Yeah. And Trump is playing right into those hands. I and, know. But and, and, and we, I mean, I think people who dislike Trump are doing nothing to try to tone it down because there is, in a lot of ways, nothing to be done. And the best way to deal with Trump would probably be to steal his oxygen, but he's an oxygen grabber. So it's sad. And, uh, and, and, and there's not much we can do about it while he's doing this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the other thing that was particularly sad here is uh, a majority, clear majority, say heated rhetoric by politicians raises the risk of violence. Democrats think that more than Republicans. 91% of Democrats feel that way. 61% of Republicans, still a majority of Republicans. I mean, I'm sure everybody sort of thinks there's some other combatant. Um, but that's, you know, I mean, these are questions that were not, these were not questions people asked before. Right. I mean, maybe during... To be honest, during the 60s, they asked that a fair bit when there was some political violence. Um, But this is really different. And, you know, who knows whether they're talking about like hitting their siblings or something like that over their views about Trump or their views about Hillary Clinton. Right, their angry uncle. That's right, angry uncle, crazy aunt in the basement. Um, But, uh, you know, of course it's depressing. Of course this violence is there. I will say that there is what has changed about it is that it is something that people can't – people who are interested in politics now can't turn away from it. For even a second, yeah, and it's it's fully immersed, it's fully engaged. I guess a question would be: if they were this engaged in politics twenty years ago, they also might have hated it as much as they do today. Yeah, I guess, right? I mean, it, yes. Um, and then they have these. Indi- I mean, I thought this was particularly interesting. Where they said, "Is it never or rarely? How, you know, how acceptable is it to do these other? You know." T- say these other things about your political opponent. And so the thing that's seen as the least um, acceptable is to deliberately mislead people about their opponent's record. <laughs> I got news for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> who's going to tell them? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and then the next that they, you know, may have made the decision from a lot of campaign ads that were deliberately misleading people, you know, 
from, you know, I, I, lots of things that were not true that folks said on the right for sure about Democratic candidates on the left. Um, say something negative about the opponent's physical appearance. That's not something that actually candidates do that much. I mean, right. I guess they do sometimes. Well, it's so, I mean, it's so heightened because of Trump. Right. I mean, he does that. But, you know, does that happen in your average house race? I mean, it happens, but, you know, most people have figured out how to avoid doing that in public on the record. That's right. They say, I don't believe it, but I heard in the news. Right. That her nose... Say their opponent is stupid. That's one thing people don't like. Shout over their opponent in debates. Wow. Okay. So I hope that, <laughs> what about in a meeting? Just a, right. asking for a friend. Is that okay? All right. Ridicule their opponent. Say their opponent is anti-American. Those things are now, you know, most people say they're, you know, it's not acceptable, but the intensity is lower. It's still majorities though. Say their opponent's policy positions are evil. I mean, I don't know. Th- these, this list doesn't quite seem like it matches up with the list of like, okay, here are some 10 you know, bad ideas like that, that right. we might do. Like, th- I don't know if this match. Right. Match and and as, up with that. As, as pollsters, we have to look at these questions and say to ourselves, okay, in our experience, do people actually act on it? Yeah. Like we, if you read this question, you assume, okay, so if a, if a candidate misled about another candidate's record, they're definitely going to vote right. for the other candidate. Right. And they'll say that, yes. but they'll never actually do that. But, right. Because, you know, first of all, misleading is, is can be subjective, right? right? And one, I mean, truly, it truly can be. It's not always. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's subjective. And then other times people don't know. And other times people are like, I, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm already voting for, for that person. You know, I've already made up my mind, you know, who I'm going to vote for. I'm already going to vote for the person who says the other one's misleading because I agree with them on issues. So I don't... That's more important to me than whether or not they mislead me on what the opponents say. I mean, everybody says they want better TV, but they're still going to watch The Bachelor. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing. So you're saying that people's stated preferences don't always match up with their behavior. You know, I've just come to that belief. <laughs> it's taken me a but while. But you should still do research just to be sure. <laughs> well, just hire more pollsters. Don't fire your pollsters, no. whatever you do. Just just fire a few of them. Exactly. <laughs> the, the bad ones. Um, and then the things that people think are okay to say their opponent is uninformed. And what's also not quite as unacceptable is raise your voice to emphasize your point in a debate. That's like, okay, maybe that's fine. Well, I think you should match this up with people's view about gender, right. and then I think you'll find the the crosstab on that. Or maybe if they're maybe critical. region, maybe if you're from like New Jersey, people are like, "What? That's well, fine." Well, they'd say, "What do you mean, raise your voice? <laughs> I was just talking." <laughs> I know exactly. Like so many years ago, I took my dad to the Greek consulate to like get some update on his passport. My dad's Greek. For folks who haven't heard me talk about it, and um. And they were starting to talk in Greek. And this was years ago. They were like smoking inside. You could smoke inside the consulate. Like they had like little metallic ash. I mean, it was just it didn't seem like an official government building. Everyone was just sort of shouting and smoking. And all of a sudden, my dad and the woman who was responsible for figuring this all out, she was the gatekeeper to get everything worked out. They're just like screaming at each other (laughs) in Greek, which I don't speak. And I'm like, this is not going well. And I interrupt. I'm like, excuse me. I don't know what he said. Whatever it is, I'm sorry. Can you speak in English? I'm so sorry. We're just want to, I'm sure you're doing a great job. Like, I'm just trying to take it. And every, they both looked at me like, what? What are you talking about? Like, we're just talking. <laughs> we're just talking. <laughs> like, oh, I'm the crazy one. <laughs> Clearly. You guys have figured it out. and I'm the crazy one. Um, so, and then they had this other question that I thought was funny, more about Trump. So these other questions were like broad, you know, about the political climate and what's like, what's good or not good communication. You don't know if people are thinking about Trump or if they're thinking about, you know, the congressional race or gubernatorial race or Senate race that they, where they live or who knows. Um, but then they say, do Trump's, com- are, how often do Trump's comments, you know, often or sometimes make them feel concerned, confused, embarrassed? Exhausted, angry. I mean, I think these are this. I really like this actually. Insulted, frightened, uh, entertained, informed. So this, you know, they have good positive traits and negative traits, and obviously massive party party differences on all these things. I mean, it's like not pointless to even look at the total right. number. Um, and the re- negative one that Republicans felt the most strongly was concerned. The one they felt the least was. Frightened, but you had a majority of Republicans say they felt embarrassed. They sometimes feel embarrassed. So we're doing some work in the One Country Project among rural voters who voted for Obama and who voted for Trump. And their biggest concern about Trump is that sometimes he does things that make them feel embarrassed. Yeah. 
But at the same time, they still voted for him and they believed that three years ago when they voted for him. Right. Right. Because you had like a majority of people in the exits who said he doesn't have the right, you know, of of the people who said, the, uh, you know, he has the wrong temperament to be president, like a fifth or something said voted for him anyway. I mean, not everybody, but like there was a sizable number of people who were like, yeah, he doesn't have the right. Temperament. Right, There's a lot of people who said and we I'm need still- someone who has the wrong temperament to be president to be president. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so the one item of the positive traits that Democrats felt the most strongly about was entertained. A third of Democrats said they feel sometimes entertained by the president's comments. Anyway, so good well, times. Horror movies are entertainment also. Speaking of entertainment, are should, we? We, should we talk about Gallup's poll on CBD and then salads? We have lots of green stuff. We're going to close <laughs> with just green things. Things that are legal in Washington, D.C. And green. Right. And so first is Gallup. You know, Gallup Gallup often does these polls on, like, moral values and, like, you know, wellness, various kinds of wellness. They have this, like, holistic kind of approach to, you know, a variety of things you don't see in lots of other outlets. Like, here, what kind of behaviors are okay? And, you know, things like... Adultery or euthanasia, like all you know, you know, drug use, et cetera. So that this question I thought was int- I don't think I've seen like a major outlet do a poll on CBD before. I was surprised. I feel like in the last like two months, everywhere I turn, there's some like CBD conversations. Just sort of like all of a sudden hit me that it was happening everywhere. I also noticed that they're selling CBD at every store. Yeah, from from. But not in Washington, are they? I've it's seen signs that say CBD oil, CBD. Derivative oil derivative. Like yeah. they do it some way that it's not really CBD, but people are selling it everywhere. It's really I'm I'm just kind of amazed. And I mean, you know, you, I went to a I went someplace in Philly. You could go to the bar and said, "Would you like a CBD upgrade to your drink?" Which <laughs> and CBD gelato stores. I'm like, is that better than flaxseed? I, <laughs> I don't know. I was like, what? I don't know what's happening. So it's just it's very very confusing to me, or not confusing, but just amazing and how quickly it's kind of gone everywhere. So. What was interesting is then they asked, do you think CBD oil should be legally available for adults to purchase over the counter only with a doctor's prescription or not available? If you, you know, among all adults, about 40% say over the counter, a fifth say with a prescription. But if you're familiar with them, then two thirds basically say over the counter and a third say just with prescription. So I don't know which is what's the causality here. Which direction the causality goes. And then with young, like, do you become familiar with it? And you're like, oh, this should be, you know, this needs to be over the counter. Um, and then younger people, not surprisingly, are not are a little bit more familiar with it. But it's not overwhelming, I have to say. I mean, I'm surprised to find like, oh, you know, 30, I mean, what is this? Like 37% of seniors say they're at least somewhat familiar with CBD. Right. Well, it's it's being heavily marketed to seniors really? as well. Absolutely. It's considered a cure for arthritis. And it, I mean, it's it's a cure for what ails you. It's the, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say about this. Trump? My ail, I, my, what ails me is Donald Trump. Exactly. Is it a cure for Donald Trump? No, I think you need the harder stuff for that. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I'm not, I, I hope not to offend and, uh, cannabis activists in your audience, but you know, CBD is frankly the snake oil of our time. People say it cures everything. In fact, people who support CBD oil and sell it can't think of something it doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And either, I would imagine, it seems like, right, there's not some thing yet. Like you can't promise that CBD is good at X. You can only say it's good at Y. We're not there yet. Right now you could say it's good at everything except for That's Donald right. Well, Trump. It's, it's not, you know, from a, from a marketing and from a legal yeah. perspective, it's not a... Uh, it's not a drug. Yeah. Still, right? I mean, occasionally they get, um, you know, didn't they crack down on like, what was it, like pirate booty years ago? They were like, this makes you smarter. This is going to be, you know, brain, there was like a variety. Because it was brain food yes. or something like right, that. Right, right, yes. right, right. There's always these like, you know, I mean, there are always these like things that are food that they say you can't make that claim. Anyway, here's a food you can make a good claim about. This is a PRI had a poll, Whiteboard Wednesday, poll of the week. What is the best green? CBD is not on this list in any form. (laughs) What's the best green to build your salad around? And as somebody who starts my day with a breakfast salad. Oh, God, Margie. And continues usually my day with a lunch salad. 
I was very interested in this question. Uh, now, when I posted this in the script, Romaine and Mixed were tied. So, was, uh, But it's still like basically a four-way tie between Kale, Romaine, Arugula, and Mixed. Where are you? I'm going to see where people are now. When I go to Kava, I do get the mixed, but I get the super greens that I think is the one that has like the shaved Brussels sprouts and stuff like that. Now, are you a Kava or a sweet green or somebody something else partisan? Definitely, I'm a Kava partisan. Over sweet green. Over sweet green. Really? Sweet green's just a little too much green. <laughs> <laughs> I need a little less green in my greens, but I am a, a GBAO is like really feels very strongly about sweet green. There's like a real sweet green. Thing happening. Are you sure one of they're my... not just doing it because Margie, the no. O in GBAO, no. loves sweet the green? The G, the G is like, is so into sweet green. It's like he has a special salad that he makes. He gets letters from the manager. <laughs> he is like, he, you know, this is like a, is a thing. And so he is very into sweet green. And so we've all kind of like adapted, you know, adopted sweet green as like our own. Mascot, if salad mascot, if there's no, such just, a thing. It, it seems like you get to the bottom of the sweet green and you're just at that point like a cow. Just no, chewing what are you talking and about? They've tested them and, and they mix it. You know, they mix it chewing. and no, 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 no. <laughs> it's good. It's really good. I mean, I think sweet green in other cities, like I think in New York, when you go, they're like, What? What do we need sweet green for? We have a million other kinds of things. But right. in Washington, what's the difference between going to sweet green and like Capital Grill, you know, or the Palm. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> I mean, we have lots of choices now, but still, right. then you know, you have a little bit more accessible kinds of lunch options. Um, currently, Romaine is at thirty nine percent, thirty four percent mixed, fourteen percent at kale, thirteen percent of arugula. I, I, I mean, I have to say, I'm a little. I mean, I'm not surprised that my my choice is the last choice. You know, the least popular. I mean, isn't Romaine? Wouldn't like. You extremists say that romaine isn't really lettuce. It's basically iceberg. I mean, I did say something like that around the office as we were joking about this poll. And and people were like, what? (laughs) I I wasn't making a lot of friends. That was the one that people who don't like salad would say, yeah, as long as there's romaine and then like a steak on top of it, then I could have it. Yes, right. But the kale is a little too much. No, it's not a superfood. Romaine is not a superfood. Now, it's nice if it's grilled and certainly, you know, I enjoy more than having a burger if I'm on my way to, like if I'm in the back room of a focus group. You're really micro-targeting your audience today, aren't you, Margie? Well, you know, with Kristen gone... I can talk about whatever I want, and it's about salad. <laughs> okay, just come at me, everybody. <laughs> She's like, "What happened?" <laughs> I'm like, "You wanted to talk about Tim Tebow and golden retrievers? You're gone. I'm talking about salad and the Tacoma Park octopus." Okay. <laughs> okay. So, where can people find you? If can they find you? Do you want to be found online, or are you like trying to keep? You can find me on LinkedIn. You okay. can find me at OneCountryProject.com. Okay. You can find me at Doug Usher at Gmail. Sure. Um, you can find me uh, with my kids a lot oh, okay. and my wife. Who is fantastic. I Thank will tell you. them all I said hello. I will. Okay. So as always, you can find us at, at the pollsters. I'm at Margie O'Mero and Kristen is at K Soltis Anderson. And we love reviews. Send us a review. Tell us how much you liked having Doug on. Or, or, or don't. <laughs> or don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. <laughs>